Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. How is everybody? You know, I'd mentioned to uh, Pastor Skip that I had a message that I was hoping to share with the uh, fellowship. And um, as the Lord would have it, that's not the message that I have for you tonight. (laughs) You know, it's been an interesting week, uh, certainly with the um, tragedy there at Virginia Tech, together with, um, you know, the passing of uh, Pastor Skip's mom. You know, it's been a difficult week. It's possibly been a difficult week for some of you out there. In fact, just by a show of hands, let me ask you this. How many of you feel like overall you had a good day today? Quite a few of you, actually. Now, here's the real test of honesty. How many of you feel like you had a bad day? Oh, well, there's still a good number of you as well out there. You know, I heard about a um, man recently who um, was at home working. He was doing a home improvement project. He actually uh, had his wife come home unexpectedly. And while he was there uh, working in the uh, kitchen, um, she arrived. He had uh, his back turned to her, but he was uh, flailing, you know, with his hands out like this, frantically. And uh, she became very concerned. Um, She saw some wires that were attached, you know, to him and instantly just came to the conclusion that he was connected to a power source of some kind and was being electrocuted. So she grabbed a two-by-four that just happened to be close by, whacked him with it. Um, in the process, knocked him to the ground, broke his arm in two places, um, but dislodged the iPod that he had been listening to. (laughs) Probably not his best day, and, and I'm guessing probably not hers either. You know, tonight's message actually comes out of a conversation that Pastor Dave Rao and I had recently we were talking together and discussing what is it that makes for a good day or a bad day. You know, we all tend to have them, but what is it that really contributes to that being the fact? You know, ever since we had that conversation, it was about a week ago, that's been a very, um, how do I want to say, thought-provoking thing to me. You know how sometimes when you have a conversation with somebody, you just can't get it out of your head because it's just one of those things that you've really just been wrestling with. And, you know, as I looked back over it, I thought, you know what? Most of my life, as maybe some of your lives are as well, has been a roller coaster ride of emotions. The good days and the bad days and the good days and the bad days. And as I contemplated this thing that Dave and I were talking about, I thought, you know, what is it that makes that up? And, you know, as I really got serious about it, especially in the last couple of days, I realized something that we needed to talk about tonight, a very serious matter at hand. And so that is, if you will, the genesis of the message we're going to have tonight out of Philippians 2, if you'd like to turn there. And at the same time, if you would just join me in prayer. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We are so thankful for that privilege, Lord, and uh, the access that it gives us directly to your throne room. 
But right now, Lord, I'm praying for myself and the others that are gathered here as we uh, turn to your word, as we turn to hear from you, Lord, about uh, what it is you would have us learn about this whole issue of joy. Father, we're faced with a lot of things in this life, some very difficult things that uh, many of us have been faced with even in the past couple of days. But, Lord, uh, we're thankful that we have you to turn to. And, Lord, just pray that you would speak to us in this time tonight. And all of God's people prayed in agreement and said, Amen. So think about it. For you personally, what is it that makes your day? Is it a promotion? Maybe it was a raise at work? Fulfilling a lifelong dream? Finishing a project? Pastor Dave, by the way, is doing some home remodeling. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, he's not the man in the earlier story I gave you. But uh, I know he's going to be thrilled when he finishes that project. That's going to make his day, as it were. How about words of encouragement from someone you love or respect? You know, the last time I taught on a Wednesday night, in fact, I still have it here on my phone, I received a message from my younger son. And at the end of the message, he uh, sent me a text message. That's kind of the new thing. It's kind of funny, too, if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, at one time we were thrilled that we could actually talk to somebody, but now we want to send them texts through it. But he texted me and he said, you did great. I'm proud of you. And most of all, I love you. Now, uh, for those of you who are parents, especially of young people, uh, you treasure those kinds of things. Those kinds of things make your day. And that certainly made my day, made my night. But on the other hand, let's look at the other side of this. What is it that breaks your day? What is it that can happen in the course of your day that absolutely makes it a bad day? Is it a conflict with a friend or a family member or a work associate? Is it watching the news like we get to so often anymore and see the uh, terrorist suicide bombers in Iraq or other places? Or the tragedies that we see like at Virginia Tech? How about fighting traffic? Now, that's a good one, isn't it? Or how about this? Even better, how about if you receive one of those very special envelopes containing a traffic citation in the mail, (laughs) along with a photograph of your car from a red light camera? Okay, show of hands, how many of you got one of those? No, you don't. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was going to have you stop, but... You know, I thought I was in good shape with those because, you know, I don't ever really run a red light. And then I became fearful when I found out that they actually track your speed as well. I heard about a fellow in another state, and uh, he had received one of those blessings in the mail, and it was a a citation for $40. And in that um, citation was, of course, that photograph that we all know and love of his vehicle. And he decided to get cute. So what he did is he uh, made a photograph of $40 and sent it back to the police department. (laughs) They apparently were not overly impressed. They sent him back another photograph of a pair of handcuffs. (laughs) So hopefully he got the message. Maybe your day was a train wreck for a more serious reason. Maybe those of you who had a bad day today received troubling news. You know, we heard yesterday, some of you heard for the first time tonight, about the passing of Skip's mom. Or maybe it was a word from a doctor about yourself or a family member. 
Now, I know a few, a few of you are maybe a few steps ahead of me here tonight, and you're thinking, well, Pastor Allen, there's a difference between the topic you're talking about, joy, and this issue of happiness and whether we have a good day or a bad. And yes, I would agree with you in part, but there are some similarities that I would point out. Joy, if you look it up, is defined as extreme gratification aroused by something good or desired. Happiness, on the other hand, is defined as a feeling of pleasure or contentment. By definition, they seem to be pretty close cousins, don't they? They almost sound alike. But there are times when they are clearly unrelated. You know, I had the privilege of serving at a funeral service here just a week or so ago. And it was one of those services that really stood out to me. The man who had passed was in his mid-50s died unexpectedly of a heart attack. His death, as you might imagine, was not only sudden, but it was tragic for his family, who certainly did not expect for that to happen. Tragic loss for his wife and kids. Yet while there was this clear, deep sorrow and an absence of joy, or excuse me, an absence of happiness, there was this joy. That was what's so incredible about this family. In fact, even the funeral director came to me and said, you know what, usually I minister to the families when they come in. But this family ministered to me. Amazing, isn't it? That they had this joy. In fact, at his service, there was frequent laughter in the crowd at his memory. But not because they were happy, But in spite of their unhappiness, they had this underlying joy. They knew the truth of Psalm 21, verse 6, where it says, You have endowed him with eternal blessings. You have given him the joy of being in your presence. See, their joy was for the person they loved. Their joy was there because they knew their loved one had gone to be with God. And for that, they were joyful. That's a good example of how joy and happiness aren't always one and the same. As much as I hesitate to do this, and if you'll beg me this at least this one time, could I quote Oprah to you? (laughs) I really tried to get away from this, but it was so good. And by the way, I didn't get it from the show. I don't watch the show. Don't send me emails and ask that. But... She said, I define joy as a sustained sense of well-being and eternal peace, a connection to what matters. A connection to what matters. Now, as a believer, hopefully that strikes you because we should all know what we're connected to that matters. Hopefully we're going to see together in our study tonight of Philippians 2 that Christian joy should run much deeper in our lives than normally it does. And really, truly should stand out different from happiness. We're going to have circumstances happen in our life, the traffic citation or whatever it might happen to be, they are going to cause us to be unhappy about the event, the circumstance. But in spite of that event, we can still have that underlying joy. Tonight, I want to take you back to what I believe is a fundamental in the Christian faith. Something that the world around us is looking to us to see. One thing that I would suggest that is a watermark 
in a Christian's life that the world needs to see. Let's take a look at Philippians 2 together. Verse 1. Is there an encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Now, Paul presents us with four really great questions here. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship in the Spirit? Those are great questions. So right off the bat, he helps us get our priorities in order. Because in Paul's recipe for joy, the first and obvious part is Jesus. That's got to be priority. Think about it. No matter what happens in a Christian's life, we belong to Christ. He loves us. We have fellowship with the King. Not just the King, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, David in Psalm 16 writes of this. He says, uh, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for He is right beside me. No wonder my heart is filled with joy and my mouth shouts His praises. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your godly one to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence. And catch this, the pleasures of living with you forever. Wow. That's what we have. That's the joy that we have. God is always with me. I'm not going to be shaken. I will one day know the pleasures of living with Him forever. Something to take note if you want to go look at this yourselves later tonight. Earlier in Psalm 16, here's what David gives as a prerequisite to that joy. In verse 1 he says, Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my master. All the good things I have are from you. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Those who chase after other gods will be filled with sorrow. I will not take part in their sacrifices or even speak the names of their gods. Did you notice what he was pointing out? We come to him. We acknowledge him for who he is as Lord. We recognize that everything good we have comes from Him. In addition to that, David makes it clear that we have to reject the false gods or the idols in this world. Those are those prerequisites for knowing the joy of the Lord. You know, in Mark, there's the infamous great commandment, right? You know, where they come to him, they say, well, what is the greatest commandment? And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, that sounds simple in theory, doesn't it? Are you with me? Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But practically, how do we do that on a daily basis? Is it simply a matter of attending church? of having a quiet time, of prayer. I believe, frankly, it's much more than that. 
In fact, I believe it's the difference that you see if you know much about the difference between the Greek mindset and the Hebrew mindset. See, in the Greek mindset, which has become the Western mindset, there's a compartment, compartments, you would say, between what is sacred and what is secular. That's why a person with a Greek mindset can come and behave in a certain way in a church service, in a church setting, in that compartment because it's sacred, but leave from that setting and act entirely different and think nothing of it because they see them as two separate worlds. In our culture, sometimes we call it what? Wearing different hats. You know, I've got a hat that I wear at work. I've got a hat that I wear at church. I've got a hat that I wear at home. But the Hebrew mindset was entirely different than that. A Hebrew man plowing his field felt that his work being done as unto the Lord was every bit as important as if he was reading the Torah in the synagogue. For him, it was more of a 24-7 reality. And I think that's a good wake-up call for us sometimes. That we don't just act or acknowledge even that God is present in our life when we attend a church service. But in fact, we acknowledge Him all the time. No matter what we're doing. Whether we're at home, in the workplace, on the highway. (laughs) Some of those places that for some of us are a little harder than others. Now, Paul's not speaking theoretically here, I hope you understand. But he's truly speaking out of his personal experience. For those of you that may not know this, Philippians is actually one of the later epistles that Paul writes. The only ones that are later than this are his pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. It's actually the last epistle that he writes to a specific group, being that the other ones are individuals. He wrote it in approximately 61 to 62 A.D., While, catch this, he's under house arrest in Rome. Now he's there, remember, in Rome, because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had him arrested. Said he was breaking a ceremonial law. And not only did they have him arrested, but if you'll recall, they even plotted to have him murdered. He was eventually shipped off to Rome when he appealed to Caesar, but that's the circumstances that Paul's writing this letter under. And yet, here's that theme. I often ask myself, would I have that same kind of attitude that Paul has here in Philippians if I were in jail, if I were imprisoned, if I were undergoing some of the conditions that he was going under. You know, a quick look at Paul's life, and you can very quickly understand that he probably knows a whole lot more about the stuff that can make for a bad day than most of us do. We're pretty soft, aren't we? I mean, think about it. You know, Paul, about six years earlier, wrote actually in 2 Corinthians uh, something very interesting. He was writing to them to kind of let them know what things had been like for him. And in his second letter to them, he wrote in chapter 6, We, speaking of himself and the people with him, have patiently endured troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, we've been put in jail, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. 
Earlier in that same epistle he wrote, I think you ought to know, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and completely overwhelmed, and we thought we would never live through it. I think very few of us have been placed in that kind of a situation, have we? He says, in fact, we expected to die. But as a result, most important point here, we learned not to rely on ourselves, but on God. See the wisdom that Paul's passing on to them and to us? In the midst of those trials and those troubles that we're having, we need not to rely on our own understanding, but we need to rely on God. Simply stated, I think what Paul's showing us here is that Jesus took center stage for him. Would you believe that? I mean, if somebody like me said that about Paul, would you believe that about him? Would people say that about us? Would people say that Jesus takes center stage for us? That he's the main thing? You know, back uh, earlier in this epistle to Philippi, he wrote in chapter 1, For I live in eager expectation and hope that I will never do anything that causes me shame, but that I will always be bold for Christ, as I have been in the past, and that my life will always honor Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living is for Christ and dying is even better. Yet if I live, that means fruitful service for Christ. I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. Sometimes I want to live, and sometimes I long to go to be with Christ. That would be far better for me, but it's far better for you that I live. Wow, what a great man. Christ is center stage in his life. Jesus comes first, but who comes second? Does Paul himself come second? No. He puts others even before himself. And that leads us to the second ingredient that Paul gives us in this recipe for joy, and that's others. Follow me back to chapter 2 again. Paul says in verse 3, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. It's very clear from this passage and the other one that I read to you that Paul esteemed the needs of others above his own. And hopefully this isn't a news flash for you here tonight, but the Bible doesn't teach self-esteem. The Bible teaches others' esteem. You know, I had a person in my office not too long ago referring to the second part of that great commandment that I gave you. Remember what it is? And the second is like the first, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this particular individual was saying that you have to teach people to love themselves before they can love others. But I pointed out to him that's not what the verse is saying. In fact, that verse comes from the position of already it being understood that we love ourselves. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul writes, chapter 5, No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it. Pastor Chuck Smith of uh, Calvary Costa Mesa, I heard him talking about this on the radio one time, and he was saying, it's interesting, there's these people out there that will say something like, I hate myself, I'm so ugly. But he said, think about the contradiction in that statement. 
I mean, have you ever thought about somebody you really disliked? Weren't you glad they were ugly? <laughs> you know, this is a personal issue for me because I actually am one of those people growing up who said that. And as a teenager, there was actually a period of time that I did everything possible to even avoid looking in a mirror. In my early adulthood into my 20s, I put my hands on as many self-help books, seminars, tape sets that I could find along those lines, all in an attempt to better myself and to improve my self-esteem. In fact, one book that I read that I remember came to a climax, and the final statement in that book was, You are God. I set the book down, and even though I wasn't a believer at the time, I said, No, I'm not. That's ridiculous. Because if I'm God, we're in big trouble. But that was this person's big climax. You know, although I didn't fall for the lie that I was God, I did fall for the lie of esteeming myself. And it caused me a lot of difficulty for a long period of time. And thankfully, God delivered me from that way of thinking. As a side note, something interesting for you to know, psychologists have actually devised some fairly sophisticated tests to determine what, a level, what level of self-esteem somebody has. They can ask, actually test you on this. And they've done some pretty hot, comprehensive testing across the United States with this. Do you know what they found? Do you know where most of the people that score the highest on these self-esteem tests are? They're in prison. True story. But you know what? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, does it? If I'm loving myself so much, I'm going to take what I want from you. No matter what that is. Whether it's rape or murder or robbery. That's the fruit of the self-esteem tree. Looking at it in another way, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't have self-esteem? If all he did was esteem his needs above our needs, we'd be in a radically different situation here tonight, wouldn't we? It'd be pretty desperate. That leads us to the last part of this recipe, which is you. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God... He did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I ask you, is the attitude you have tonight the same that Christ Jesus had? I love what it says here. 
though he was God, and certainly he is God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He literally set aside, if you will, his divine rights and privileges. I think that's huge. I think that's a lot different than I am a lot of times. Demanding my what? Hey, you know, I have rights. Or asking for my privileges, right? We're guilty of that, aren't we? But yet the example that our Lord gave us is one entirely different from that. Made himself nothing, or as some translations, or maybe your translation put it, made himself of no reputation. That's another thing that's kind of important to us, isn't it? Hey, do you, do you know my reputation? Do you know what people say about me? But here, again, the King of kings and Lord of lords made himself of no reputation. Have you ever thought about how radical it had to have been for God to come to earth as man? Now, in my mind, that's a pretty big step down. <laughs> I don't know if it's this big or if it's bigger, but that'd be almost like us being mosquitoes or something. I mean, that kind of a huge step down. And it says that he did that. And even as he did that, what's amazing is that he was still fully God. He was the perfect God-man. Fully God, fully man. And as such, it says in this passage, in human form, he humbled himself even further by what? By dying a criminal's death on a cross. You know, we don't fully re relate to the whole crucifixion thing in our culture any longer. But that was not only humiliating for the person who was being killed, but it was equally humiliating for their family. It was a mark of shame. But he obediently humbled himself even further by doing that. I love the way Peter puts this in uh, one of his letters. He says, Christ who suffered for you is your example. Following his steps, he never sinned. He never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. When he suffered, he didn't threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried away our sins in his own body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Our God took the need that we had and esteemed it over His own need, His own right, His own privilege of being God and being respected. Now, what does others' esteem mean to you and what does it mean to me? Well, literally, it fits into every scenario that you can imagine. That means that I esteem the needs of my wife as being more important than my own. That means I esteem the needs of my child as being more than my own. The needs of my employer as being more than my own. Are you tracking with me? 
Every one of those situations, I esteem the needs of that other person above my own. And in so doing, I'm following the example that my Lord gave me. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? Hopefully you noticed in Paul's recipe so far that Jesus comes first, others come right after him, and ahead of you. (laughs) Which kind of leads us to the next part of the recipe. You. It's kind of the hard part in some ways, I think. Go down to verse 12. Dearest friends, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. But now that I am away, you must be even more careful to put into action God's saving work in your lives. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey Him and the power to do what pleases Him. And everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing so that no one can speak a word of blame against you. You are to live clean and innocent lives as children of God in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Let your lives shine brightly before them. Hold tightly to the word of life so that when Christ returns, I will be proud that I did not lose the race and that my work was not useless. But even if my life is to be poured out as a drink offering to complete the sacrifice of your faithful service, that is, if I'm to die for you, I will rejoice. And I want to share my joy with all of you. And you should be happy about this and rejoice with me. If it were not for the promise of eternal life, that we have, like Psalm 16 said, to live with Him forever, to be in His presence forever. Do you realize how crazy it would sound that He's rejoicing over the possibility that He would die? And even how the advantage of His death would be something to them, the people reading this letter. You know, as much as I hate to admit it, I'm not really good at being last. As a guy especially, I'm pretty competitive. In fact, my wife tells me she doesn't like to play games with me because I always have to win. Truth is, I don't always have to win, but I do always play to win. I say there's a difference. She doesn't think there is one, I don't think. But the truth of the matter is this whole idea of coming in last doesn't work real good for us. One of my other problem areas is out on the freeway. You know, I'm doing just fine in the right-hand lane. You know, until somebody has to come along in the left-hand lane and they're going faster than I am. There's something to me somehow in my mind that says I'm going to come in last. And somehow we've turned this into a competitive race of some kind. And we're probably not even going to the same place. (laughs) And you know, the truth is, I think about myself a lot. Certainly more than I think about you. And honestly, more than I think about God. This whole issue of who we are is not an easy one. It's a difficult one. 
even for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We still have this flesh nature that's a part of this. You know, in this whole issue of uh, joy, it's very easy to become myopic on how things are affecting you personally. And at some point, although we might not ever say this, it becomes all about me. I remember a situation a number of years ago early in our marriage that I called a pastor friend of mine because we were going through some troubling times as a couple. And I kind of filled him in on what was going on and told him the whole um, outlook from, of course, my point of view, right? And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Alan, you're expecting to get your peace and your joy from your wife. He said, you should be receiving your peace and your joy from the Lord. Well, I thanked him very much, hung up the phone and thought, that's trite. How cliche. How many times have we heard that before? Right? Got to get your peace and your joy from the Lord. Well, as God would have it, that was a landmark in my life that day. Shortly after that, I was prompted to open up the scriptures here. In fact, turned right to this passage. Actually, the start of the next chapter, chapter 3. And the words literally jumped off the page to me. Where Paul says, whatever happens, brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. And so I knew that my friend was truly speaking from the Lord. But you know, what started to occur to me was there was a reality in that. And that I really was seeking to get my peace and my joy from another person. And as I thought about it through my life, that had happened many times before. If she had a good day, then I had a good day, right? Riding high on the coaster. She has a bad day. Whoa, baby, we're going down, right? (laughs) And you just have this ride. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a best friend. It could be a parent. Somebody that causes you to ride this coaster. And I decided right then and there that as exciting as I thought roller coasters were, I wanted to get off that puppy and get me a (laughs) merry-go-round. You ever watch kids on a merry-go-round? I mean, I love the childlike faith of little kids. They're not going anywhere. It just keeps going around and around. And that horse goes up and down and up and down. But they are absolutely thrilled and the quarter runs out or five bucks, whatever it is nowadays. But, I mean, it stops. And you know what they say? Again. They want to ride it again. And you're thinking, this is, this is crazy. But there's a level of consistency to that that a child enjoys. And you know what? I think we need to find that level of consistency in our own lives when it comes to our personal joy. There are going to be little ups and downs on the horsey, right? We're going to have days that are a little happier and a little less happy than others, but there's a consistency to the ride that we're on. And better than that, we know who's controlling the ride. You know, I've realized that in my continual thinking about myself, putting the focus on myself, 
considering just how things affect me, that that's part of the root cause of my Christian joy being dampened. The reason that my Christian joy isn't as vibrant as it could be is because I spend too much time thinking about this third thing here, me. And I've got to put it back into perspective. I've got to see it the way Paul saw it. Remember how he started? He started with Jesus. I've got to look at things from the perspective of Jesus. I I love when Jesus started getting his disciples together there at the end of his ministry. One of the things that he told them was incredibly powerful. He told them, in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have trials and tribulations. But then he said, take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. See, the reality is we have to start looking at things from the perspective of Jesus. We have to put others ahead of ourselves. And can I suggest, as radical as this seems, that we need to stop thinking as much as we do about ourselves and how things affect us personally. found out something about eagles this week that I thought was really interesting. Do you know that an eagle actually knows a storm is breaking and coming long before it actually does? And in preparation for that, an eagle will fly to some high spot and wait. And when the storm hits, the eagle uses his wings to lift above the storm and stay above it. So while the storm is raging down below... The eagle is soaring high above. Think about this. The eagle doesn't escape the storm. He simply uses the storm to lift himself above it. The eagle literally rises on the very winds that brought the storm. I think that gives new meaning to Isaiah 40, doesn't it? Where it says, Those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will fly high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So what should we do when the storms of life, the things that happen to us, often suddenly and unexpectedly occur? We need to have Jesus first. Put others in that situation right behind Him and yourself last. And that's what's going to allow us to maintain the joy. So as people look at us, they say, you know what? There's something different about that guy or about that gal. So as I close tonight, do you have a sustained sense of well-being and internal peace? If you're a Christian, you should. Because you have a connection to the one that really matters. But let's not forget to tell our face, okay? The rest of the world is watching. And if you aren't a Christian, you have a chance to change that tonight. Would you stand and let's pray together? Father God, as we close out this service tonight, I just pray that uh, you would speak to us about the role that each one of us plays as a Christian We're in a desperate world in a lot of ways, Lord, that seems to be upside down in so many different ways. And, Father, what the world is looking for is they're looking for answers. 
And I pray, Father, that we as Christians have those answers. Father, if there's anybody here tonight that has not got that right in their own life yet, they would recognize that tonight they can come forward after this service and talk with a counselor and find out how to get connected to the one that really matters. But for the rest of us who have already made that choice, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your joy and we would never lose sight of it and we would never tire of riding your merry-go-round. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.